from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Hey ho, friends. Welcome to the broadcast. Voice is a little raspy. Do you get this in the summer? You're in and out of the air conditioning constantly, in and out of the car, then into an air-conditioned building. Hopefully you have uh, air conditioning. And uh, the heat, you know, you go from, I don't know about you, but I get the air conditioning cranked in my little tin can. Uh, bombing around uh, the uh, the streets of Toronto, the good, and I get I, I like basically I'll have icicles forming on my glasses, and then I get out and it's like 50 degrees, like we had with the humidity uh, humidity uh, late last week. I think Friday it was supposed to get up around 50. So the constant uh, temperature change actually takes its toll, especially uh, on the voice. So if I'm sounding a little bit like Tom Waits tonight, that's why. How are you? I had the, uh, I had the boys, um, it's summer. What do you do with twin boys? You gotta keep them occupied and busy for eight weeks, right? Until, uh, school starts. And it's not like they'll sit for any, uh, extended period of time and allow you to, I don't know, maybe revisit some math equations just to keep them sharp. No, no, no. Gotta keep them busy for the full eight weeks. So I had them at Casa Loma. If you don't know Toronto, you must get up here. You must visit Casa Loma, Spanish, right? House on the Hill. Beautiful. It's, it's a castle. It's an incredible, an incredible, uh, uh, building, edifice, if you will. And, uh, so I took the boys. Now this is a, 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 a later, Castle, right? Built uh, around 1914 by one of the uh, local industrialists and, and uh, financiers. So the boys are five and a half. Their idea of a castle and my idea of a castle are a little bit different. And as soon as they set foot in the place, they said, Dad, where are the knights? Where is the armor? <laughs> Well, there was a few pieces of armor, a couple of swords hanging around, but uh, they weren't exactly disappointed. At least they didn't let on. But uh, uh, mental note, you know, if you promise a castle to, to five-and-a-half-year-olds, it better come equipped with knights, suits of armor, uh, lances, a dragon might be nice. Anyway, so that was my uh, my weekend. Hope you had a good one as well. We have a good show for you tonight, but before we get to that, I have a special announcement. I'm going to... Um, let you in on a secret. We have a an affiliate. We have another radio station that has taken the Conspiracy Show. And so a, a big, hey, how are you? Welcome to the Conspiracy Show to our friends at AM 1350 at WZGM. You'll notice I said Z. Uh, WZGM in Asheville, North Carolina. So, welcome, welcome. And uh, thank you for... Uh, for spending your part of your weekend with the conspiracy show. Hopefully there'll be more affiliates and uh, I'll let you know when they come on board. But uh, again, 1350 WZGM in Asheville, North Carolina. Uh, visit them on, I believe they have a Facebook page, so check them out. All right. My next guest, my first guest is uh, no stranger to this program. And man, this guy just cranks out the most Im- unimaginably wonderful uh, books this, I believe, is uh, somewhere around his 21st or 22nd book. It's The Pyramids and the Pentagon, the government's top secret pursuit of mystical relics, ancient astronauts, and lost civilizations. Nick Redfern uh, has also uh, given us the NASA conspiracies, the real men in black, keep out, and contactees, and uh, also contributes to a number of uh, wonderful uh, uh, magazines dealing with uh, UFOs and the paranormal. Hey, Nick, good to have you aboard. Welcome once again. Hey, Richard. Thanks for having me back on again. 
How did you research uh, 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 this book? The, you know, the the, uh, the the CIA, of course, uh, front and center as always uh, in these types of investigations. How do you how do you delve into this subject material? Well, sometimes you know it can be through all manner of different ways, and sometimes kind of alternative ones. You know, sometimes you write a book and people contact you and say, "Hey, you know, I read your book." thought you might be interested in this story that my father or grandfather told me, you know, and, and things like that. And so some of the stories actually came from that perspective where one of the people actually said, you know, my father was involved in something weird um, where the government was supposedly looking for the remains of Noah's Ark on Mount Ararat, Turkey. And then I heard a few snippets. When I, I sort of looked into this a little bit and found a few snippets where um, things have been mentioned in the past about the CIA supposedly having an interest in this. So, you know, I began to dig further like that. So, you know, I guess even though we're dealing with sort of paranormal topics, I kind of use the sort of same techniques that you would apply to any sort of investigative journalism story. You know, you just follow leads, witnesses, sources, try and get corroborative data and evidence, use the Freedom of Information Act, and then try and put it all together and, and see what you've got, you know. So it's, even though the stories can be weird, you know, you, you apply just regular, you know, investigative techniques, I think. Does the CIA, or did they, or do they have, like, a weird desk? Someone, that's that's yeah. their job. They're the case officer, and they investigate weird stuff, much the same as, say, Fox Mulder. Well, yeah, I've never actually, I hate to sort of blow the, bu- the bubble, so to speak, but I've never found that out. What I have found is that over the years, various departments have had an interest for different reasons. Um, and, but that doesn't mean it doesn't all go to, you know, say like a, a black box type scenario, you know, where there is a, a department that everything gets filtered through to. That's, that's certainly not impossible. But what I've found over the years is that, for example, the CIA's Scientific Intelligence Division, you know, they've been involved in science and technology, you know, in various investigations relative to UFOs and remote viewing. Um, some of the more espionage-based organizations, they were certainly, within the CIA, they were sort of uh, heavily interested in remote viewing as well. But there are other aspects that they weren't involved in, like photo analysis of UFOs, which was, you know, again, dealt with by the science and technology people. But again, it doesn't mean that there isn't sort of an overall body that takes an interest, but they sort of farm it out to the ones who are experts in different areas, really. Nick Redfern, the author of The Pyramids and the Pentagon, the government's top secret pursuit of mystical relics, ancient astronauts, and lost civilizations. I want to talk to you about the CIA's top secret file on Noah's Ark. Mm. How did you find out that they had a top secret file? How did you get your hands on it? Well, I mean, it's one of these situations where, you know, this was actually a story that part of it did come to me from a family member of someone who was involved in one of these investigations back in the 1970s, actually doing photo analysis uh, to try and determine what was shown on a number of CIA photographs of something weird and apparently sort of artificial looking on Mount Ararat. But a number of people over the years have come forward to talk about you know, hey, I was in the military and, you know, we flew this mission over Turkey where we were ordered to photograph this weird-looking thing. And, you know, there there was never sort of a book written on it, but there have been little snippets where people have come forward and told their stories publicly. But the thing was, it hadn't really sort of been followed up to a deep extent. And so, you know, 
various researchers have got little snippets of, you know, one person here and somebody else had spoken to the granddaughter of this person and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But what it needed was sort of, sort of a unifying look at it. So what I did was to basically sit down and collate all the information, you know, go through all the published books, etc. And hardly anything really had been mentioned about the CIA and the military angle, just, you know, a sentence here and a sentence there. But there were a few names to be followed up on, you know. So I um, did people searches, you know, on the net to track down who was still alive and say, hey, you know, I, I remember you, you went public with this or you mentioned something on a TV show 20 years ago. Are you willing to talk? And, you know, what I always say is, well, do you know anybody else who may know something? And then it went from there, it went from there, et cetera, et cetera. One of the people told me that, contrary to what a lot of people thought, you know, these stories about the CIA hiding the truth about Noah's Ark, although there was a truth to it, they said the CIA never, re never referred to it as Noah's Ark. They said that it officially in the Pentagon, it was known as the Ararat Anomaly, Mount Ararat supposedly being the landing place of Noah's Ark. So what I did was not to file a Freedom of Information Request Act um, for Noah's Ark, because the agency can legitimately say, I mean, they're not breaking the law by doing this, they can legitimately say, we don't have a file titled Noah's Ark. Right, right, you know, yes. They can, but they don't have to tell you they have one titled Ararat Anomaly. You no, know, you better know what you're asking for. You better know yeah, what you're you asking for. You have to be for. very specific, and, and legally, if you don't ask it in specific terms, they are not obliged to fill the dots in for you, if you like. Um, and so I filed it for the Ararat Anomaly, got a few pages, um, then a few more pages, and then a year or so after I appealed uh, withholding on some of the papers, more came through and more came through. Altogether, I got about 70 pages demonstrating that the story actually goes back to 1949 when a U.S. Air Force spy plane uh, was flying over Mount Ararat. He was actually heading to the border of the Soviet Union where the spy plane was going to photograph a new Russian base that was being built in the area. And the crew used Mount Ararat as kind of a marker point to where they were going. But as they approached the mountain, um, literally very near the peak, one of the guys on board said he could see this weird wing-like structure sticking out of the ice. And, you know, people think when you think of Turkey, they imagine that, you know, that the mountain is like just sandy and desert and rock. It's not. You know, that the peak of Mount Ararat is permanently ice and snow-capped all year round, pretty much. You know, we're talking thick sheets of ice. It's like the top of the Himalayas or something. And this is one um, of the possible locations that Noah's Ark was said to uh, possibly have, have come to rest uh, after the flood. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, in other words, if people see something weird sticking out the ice on Mount Ararat, their first thought, you know, is could it be Noah's Ark? And so the crew photographed whatever this thing was that became known as the Ararat Anomaly. And, of course, the, the photographs vanished into the heart of the Pentagon. And Actually, a couple of them have, or about half a dozen have surfaced into the public domain now, but a lot still haven't. Um, and the files actually referenced a lot of intriguing things about how it named various people in the agency who'd looked into this and how uh, things like spy satellites had been used to try and uh, photograph it in the 70s. Uh, also talks, interestingly enough, about how the CIA actually were monitoring published books on the subject. For example, there's a, one of the files talks about how in 1975 an author had got a book out um, on Noah's Ark, and there's actually a directive in one of the files ordering um, people in the scientific and technical, technical, excuse me, technological 
intelligence branch of the CIA to actually go out to the shopping mall where this guy was giving a lecture and listen what, to what he had to say. And the documents actually say something along the lines of this might help us in our search for the truth about the Noah's Ark problem. Now, that's like a literal quote. And, of, co of course, you know, this sort of begs the question, well, if there was nothing to be found and there was no sort of real deep investigation, number one, why was the CIA sending people out to shopping malls to listen to what published authors were saying about it? And number two, why were they even referring to it as a problem? You know, you'd think it would be an issue more for historians, archaeologists. Yeah, the... I'm trying to wrap my head around it too, Nick, because here we are, yeah. the height of the Cold War. You would <laughs> think the CIA would have a lot on their plate at this point in time, and yet here they are, as you say, going around yeah. uh, listening to, uh, to to authors speak about Noah's Ark at shopping malls and, and analyzing uh, aerial photographs and yeah. so forth. What I mean, did, did you... I hear the music creeping up. We'll take a time out. We'll come back. We'll continue right. to delve into this, but I also, of course, want to get to... Uh, some rather interesting Pentagon documents which posited that the Egyptian pyramids were constructed via levitation. We'll get to that and more with Nick Redfern, the author of The Pyramids and the Pentagon. Stay with us. From Yeti to Nessie, Pyramids to pandemics, all is revealed on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. Nick Redfern, you may have seen him on the History Channel's Ancient Aliens, a monster quest, and the UFO hunters, and uh, over on Across the Pond uh, in the UK, the BBC's Out of This World, and right now he's here with us on The Conspiracy Show. We're talking about his new book, The Pyramids and the Pentagon, the government's top-secret pursuit of mystical relics, ancient astronauts, and lost civilizations. And we're talking, uh, we were talking earlier before the break about the CIA's secret file, top secret file on Noah's Ark. And, uh, Nick, were you ever able to ascertain, um, you know, what was the CIA's preoccupation and under whose orders were they investigating whether or not this Ararat artifact, uh, was in fact uh, the final resting place of Noah's Ark? Mm. Well, yeah, I mean, that's a good question, Richard, because you would imagine that, you know, that, as you quite rightly said before the break, at the height of the Cold War, you would think the, the CIA would have other things to do than look for the remains, you know, of a rotted old boat or whatever was left of it, you know. It didn't really make sense. You know, you would imagine that was more something along the lines for archaeologists, theologians, historians, people like that. Um, and that would be the case if, you know, the only thing that was on the CIA's mind was that, well, it must be just an old rotted hull of a boat. You know, maybe the legends are true about Noah's Ark. But what's interesting is that not just the CIA, but other agencies of the military and governments and the intelligence community were also monitoring the idea and, look, and actually opening files on authors who were talking about this particular issue, namely the idea that what if Noah's Ark wasn't just sort of an old boat, what if the stories about this ark, this huge ark filled with sort of two-by-two two animals, what if it was actually an alien UFO? And what if the stories about, for example, two-by-two two animals, this was a theory posited later on, what if they were sort of collecting DNA and sort of genetic material of, you know, the entire species, different species across the planet and sort of preserving them 
in an arc-like scenario in the event of some disaster where the planet would need to be repopulated again after, you know, things had calmed down after a turbulent worldwide uh, disaster. And again, some of these files have been declassified, demonstrating how FBI agents had gone and sat in the audiences and prepared lengthy reports on authors who were talking about the idea that perhaps the story of Noah's Ark coming to rest on Mount Ararat was actually a UFO landing or crash landing on the mountain, you know, complete with um, sort of biological materials of, you know, pretty much all the different animals on the planet. So in other words, if it was some sort of UFO, or there is even just a, a belief or a, a suspicion that that might have been the case, I think it's pretty clear that the reason for looking into this would be to see if there was any sort of capital to be gained from finding and trying to understand an advanced technology. In other words, you know, it, it was never a case of just trying to determine if the old stories of Noah's Ark could be vindicated. It was to determine if there was some sort of, I guess, technology that you could extract from the past and sort of weaponize in the present, if you like. That's absolutely fascinating. I mean, that's mind-blowing is what it is, yeah. Nick. But uh, and I'm guessing these documents were heavily redacted, lots of uh, black marks all over the pages to protect names and dates and, 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 uh, and yeah, so forth. Yeah, I mean, that, that's one of the problem. I mean, what in today's world, you can understand it, that if uh, some of these files, you know, they date only from, like, the last 10 years, you know, they're not going to release files, obviously, with agents' names on who could still be in the agency. You know, you can understand that, you know, and I don't push for that sort of stuff because, you know, it's the last thing you want is, you know, causing trouble for people who are in service. But what's interesting is that, you know, we have the testimony from very credible people who've talked about sort of the U-2 missions to photograph Noah's Ark, and yet those files haven't surfaced. We have references to the satellite footage um, we have references to the CIA going out, as I said, and, you know, monitoring lectures. We've got the FBI files, but some of the more intriguing stuff about, you know, covert spy missions to overfly the mountain with high-powered cameras, etc. in the 70s, that's not there. And what's interesting is that there's like a, a decade or more from like the mid-60s through the mid-70s where all the files, there's just nothing. And yet that isn't reflected by the, what the witnesses are saying. So it's almost like some a whole section has been sort of pulled from the file. Or, you know, it may be that it's held by other agencies or departments that, you know, their material hasn't come up for declassification or it's buried so deep that even that some of the Freedom of Information people, you know, don't know what the agency's holding. You know, that, that's actually something that does happen, that, you know, people within the agency, if they're not cleared and the stuff's still classified, even they can't get hold of it to review it. You must you must find that, that that's the tantalizing part of this. It's not the stuff that you find, it's the stuff that's missing. <laughs> well, that's right. I mean, and why I find it intriguing is that, you know, if there, was no, there were no snippets of information on this other material, then you could legitimately say, well, maybe there just isn't anything else. But when you've got people talking about it, and we do have some files, you know, they're clearly talking about real events, you know, analyzing footage or photographs. I mean, there are a number of stories I relate in the book, for example, about um, photographic experts, you know, whose job it is to try and determine what a photograph taken from 50,000 feet up, you know, actually shows, you know, that that's their entire job. And some of those people have come forward, or actually, I should say that the son of one of the people who was involved in this came forward and I interviewed him. And he said, you know, my dad saw these photographs, was asked to try and determine what they showed. 
none of that material is surfaced. But because we know other aspects of the story are, the true, are true, you know, it pretty much is a given that this is a true story as well. But it's like, well, where are the files? And you're right, you know, what's more intriguing is probably what's contained in the material that hasn't surfaced. Last question on this, and then we'll move on to the, uh, the pyramids, uh, uh, Nick. And that is, any evidence or any hint in those documents that the CIA may have dispatched some team to, to uh, on an expedition to Mount Ararat? Well, not so much in the files, but I mean, I do actually have sort of pretty much a whole chapter on this in the book concerning something called Project Moondust. And Project Moondust was a legitimate military program, which still exists today, but it has a new name, and apparently that name is still classified and has not been released. But it used to be called Moondust, and the idea was that it would... Its entire mandate was to basically acquire, uh, for the U.S. military, overseas advanced technologies. For example, let's say, you know, a Russian spy satellite crashed in the Pacific Ocean. Moondust and its related personnel would be sent out and try and get to the sea before the Russians and retrieve whatever it was, take it back to the Air Force's Foreign Technology Division, and then they'd analyze it to see how advanced the technology was and if anything could be learned from it. And what's interesting is that Moondust people were copied on much of this material. So in other words, you know, they were looking to see if there's any technology that could be exploited and recovered. And this ties in with your, your question. One of the people I interviewed um, for the book said that his father was involved in an operation to analyze photographs um, of this Ararat anomaly, and it fell under the jurisdiction, he said, of a project called Moondust. And of course, you know, this is the one that its official mandate is to acquire and analyze advanced technology for U.S. military gain. So, and these files talk about some sort of like a Delta Force type team being parachuted onto the mountain to examine this thing and actually talking about finding something that was not like a a rotted old wooden ship, but was like a a hollowed out metallic hull, which clearly wouldn't have been an old wooden ark. They said, you know, they didn't find anything like advanced machinery or technology inside, but they said it was it was just literally like an empty shell, but metal. You know, so if that's true, then it clearly takes it out of way out the ballpark. And, mm. um, you know, so that's one example. But I'll be the first to admit, you know, the, the you know, so the more sensational, the more intriguing stuff, we've got fragments of the stories. But I'm encouraged that, you know, at least we've got some of the files, because it, it, if there was no files, that would be a problem. The fact that we've got some that do verify parts of the story... It suggests we've got a foot in the door, at least. So we uh, we move uh, now from Mount Ararat in uh, modern-day Turkey to uh, Egypt. And, of course, when we talk about Egypt, we obviously want to talk about the Great Pyramids. And the prevailing wisdom here is that they were uh, constructed, you know, uh, huge slabs of, of stone, uh, you know, quarried with copper chisels and, and, and dragged uh, using, uh, I don't know, uh, ropes and chains or, or not rope chains, but, uh, yeah. uh, you know, ropes and ramps and, and, and levers and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's some ancient legends, I guess, suggesting some other technology may have been, advanced technology may have been used, and the Pentagon got wind of this, and and all of a sudden, they're interested in it. What, so what's yep. the story behind the Pentagon's uh, theory or, or um, uh, these documents which suggest the pyramids may have been constructed via levitation? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's not just um, the pyramids. I mean, you can look at, for example, ancient Rome, Greece, the pyramids of Egypt, pyramids of South, Af- uh, excuse me, South America, 
Central America, Stonehenge, they all have legends attached to them. You know, even though they're separated by continents and thousands of miles, and in some cases centuries, and, uh, but they all have legends attached to them that the stones are supposedly lifted by uh, what they describe then as sort of like, you know, magical means. But today, you know, we would view as something like anti-gravity or levitation. Um, and one of the people who spoke about this was a man named Abu al-Hassan Ali al-Masudi, which is a bit of a mouthful, but um, he was a prolific 10th century writer born in Baghdad in uh, 896 AD. And he chronicled um, this sort of an immense 30-volume um, series of texts that basically told the history of the world and all his travels around India, East Africa, Egypt, Syria, Armenia, and it talks in there about how he'd uncovered some very ancient Arabic stories about how supposedly the pyramids had reportedly really been built. And it's a very intriguing story where it talks about these sort of large rods of iron that would they, that the ancients would use, um, like a rod of metal, and they would strike the stone and they would rise slowly into the air and kind of rock like a, like a small boat, you know, on a river or whatever. And they would be prodded and pushed, and they would sort of gently move like five feet above the ground along these corridors in the desert, which are all surrounded by these similar rods. Um, and it almost sounds like this sort of magnetic levitation technology that, you know, that some of the more advanced trains in uh, passenger trains in Japan that they use, you know, they're sort of what they call these maglev um, technology. Right, you know, where right. Tr- it doesn't actually sit on the track. It actually sounds very much like that. You know, they're talking about them raising them higher, pushing them into place without the need for brute force, you know, ropes, rollers, manpower, etc. And what's interesting is that many of these ancient cultures talk about now, when I say this at first, it's going to sound weird, but they talk about the stones being lifted either to the sound of music, tunes, m- musical instruments, and sound. Um, and, you know, that sounds bizarre until you realize that today's military is heavily researching this. Basically, basically the idea is what they call acoustic technology. Now, the way this works is, is the idea that um, highly amplified and directic, directed acoustics, the military has been able to demonstrate you can actually lift um, sort of small objects within the wave. It's basically you have two opposing sound frequencies with what are called interfering sound waves, and it creates what's called a resonant zone that allows you to control what's in that zone and lift it. Not the kind of technology that was readily available during the fourth well, dynasty of it ancient have Egypt. Been. No, that's the whole point. It should not have been. But when you hear all these cultures around the world saying that the, the, the stones were raised by music, by sound, by noise, that sounds what the like very much like what the military is doing today with this rudimentary acoustic technology to, to levitate objects. Now, of course, the big question is if that's true and that this applies to these stories about the Egyptian pyramids as well being lifted up, you know, the stones lifted up with this magical rod of iron, and these maglev-type technologies, then you have to ask the next question, well, where on earth or off it did this technology come from? Um, was it extraterrestrial? Or was it, as some researchers believe, you know, could there have been ancient civilizations, perhaps as advanced as us in many ways, but in other ways, advanced in very different ways, so that, you know, there wasn't much left, or there isn't much left of their ancient cultures in terms of 
computers or 747s or anything equivalent of that, but maybe they advanced in a very different way and developed highly alternative technologies to us, but they in many ways were far more advanced in what they could achieve. I mean, you know, the biggest stone-carved block in the world, a place called Baalbek, um, that weighs in at just around 1,000 tons. You know, that cannot be shifted and put into place today. You know, but, 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 it, was, but it was constructed. You know, you can Google it and see it. Um, so, you know, the other theory is that maybe it wasn't alien technology. Maybe there was, you know, in the vast distant past, who knows, 50,000, 60,000 years ago, which goes against all conventional wisdom, but maybe there was an advanced culture and some of their, you know, their secrets got passed down. And although they're lost today, maybe they existed, you know, at the time, you know, five, 10,000 years ago. And, you know, we perceived them as being built in some other fashion. And now the technology really has been lost and it's just been relegated to sort of folklore and mythology. All right. We'll pick that up on uh, the other side with Nick Redfern discussing the pyramids in the Pentagon here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. Your small business website is the key to attracting new customers. No one's looking for you in the yellow pages anymore. They're looking online. If only there was a way to make sure consumers found your website first before they find your competitors. Well, there is, and it all starts with knowing your website score. Yes, your website has a score. Search engines like Google use it to determine where to place you on a search results page. The higher the score, the higher you show up on the page, and the easier it is for consumers to find you. Now you can instantly discover your website score for free by visiting BetterWebScore.com. That's BetterWebScore.com. You'll get your scores as well as the scores of your three closest competitors. Plus, we'll show you what you need to fix to improve your score. Having a low website score is like having no website at all. Know your score. Go to BetterWebScore.com. There's no cost or obligation. That's BetterWebScore.com. Listen up, ladies. Right now, Bare Minerals by Bare Essentials is inviting you to participate in a special nationwide giveaway of the mineral makeup everyone's talking about. That's right. We're letting everyone who calls try America's number one mineral makeup risk-free. Just call 1-800-506-9427 to find out how. This is an exclusive radio-only offer you don't want to miss. You've probably heard about Bare Minerals Foundation. It was quoted in Glamour Magazine as a magic eraser. Allure Magazine, InStyle, and Elle Magazines, and Leaders in Beauty continue to rave about how Bare Minerals Foundation is naturally radiant and good for your skin. Now you can participate in our nationwide giveaway and see for yourself. Bare Minerals, makeup so pure you can sleep in it. Experience the foundation that started the makeup revolution. Participate in this special opportunity to try Bare Minerals Foundation risk-free. We will also send you a free gift set. Just call 1-800-506-9427 now. Hurry, you don't want to miss this exclusive radio offer. 1-800-506-9427. In search of sunken cities and weird science, mythical beasts, and modern-day bloodsuckers. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett continues. Welcome back, friends. Nick Redfern stays with us. His latest, The Pyramids and the Pentagon, it's a good one. The government's top-secret pursuit of mystical relics, ancient astronauts, and lost civilizations. And uh, we're talking right now about the Pentagon documents uh, pertaining to the Egyptian pyramids, an investigation into the possibility that they were actually constructed uh, via levitation. 
So what did these Pentagon documents mm. reveal to you, Nick? Well, basically, Richard, it kind of parallels quite eerily the situation with the Noah's Ark story. In the same way that, you know, with Noah's Ark, the government was watching people who were saying it was a UFO, the military opened files on people who were researching and writing about this whole idea of levitation and the pyramids. One of them uh, was a guy named Maurice Jessup, who was a researcher who wrote a number of books on UFOs in the 1950s. But as well as being interested in UFOs, he was also deeply interested in the mysteries of the past and actually traveled to Central and South America, Mexico, looking into a lot of ancient stone structures and coming back absolutely convinced they were built with some sort of ancient levitation technology. What was interesting is that Jessup didn't even have to approach the military. They started opening files on him. And in some cases where they do it clandestinely, you know, and even the research or the author doesn't know, they actually invited Jessup out to D.C., paid for his flight, his hotel room, and intensively grilled him about his book, The Case for the UFO, for two reasons. One, because he discussed extensively this whole anti-gravity levitation technology in the hands of the ancients, and the Navy had been sent an anonymous copy of the book with all sorts of annotations inside it relative to the so-called Philadelphia experiment, the legend of this reportedly vanishing ship from the Second World War. But what was actually interesting is that the guys in the Navy who invited Jessup out were actually attached to an advanced weapons and technology research program. And they were deeply interested by the theories that he had that, you know, the ancients did have access to some sort of technology, regardless of, you know, was it alien? Was it from somewhere on the earth, you know, thousands of years ago? Nobody seemed to know. But Jessup was as far as I can tell at least, the first one who they opened files on. And he wrote about this extensively. Now, if it had been a one-off, you could just say, well, you know, maybe just a couple of guys in the military who were interested in their personal free time. That was clearly not the case. And that angle is also reinforced by the fact that in the 1960s, and a New Zealand researcher named Bruce Cathy, he was also the subject of files and correspondence where, again, it was clear that the military was interested in his books, he wrote a number of books, most famous one called Harmonic 33, which again addressed this idea that in the ancient past, UFOs, if you like, flew around the earth using what was basically like a grid system, he postulated, and that it was this same grid, if you like, not a literal physical grid, but kind of like in the air, you know, it would be like a, an equivalent to like the New York subway system, but it was just sort of levels or lines of energy along which UFOs and these stones could be moved. And they opened files on him. A number of other authors as well who'd written about this angle were also the subject of files. So basically what it was, I think the military was deeply interested in this anti-gravity angle, but because it was so far in the distant past, they took an approach that you necessarily wouldn't think they'd always do. You know, you'd imagine they would always be out looking for these things. But what they did was to monitor the public work of people who were researching this angle and then take their inspiration and leads and names and data from that and then take it to the next level. We don't always expect the government, you know, to sort of follow the lead of authors and see what they're saying for their information. But that's exactly what was going on here. You know, it was, well, if, if this is thousands of years ago, but it sounds like a technology we could make use of, how are we going to find it? Well, let's see what the people in the paranormal community are saying, and, you know, we'll, we'll take the lead from them. So. Well, it's interesting that uh, during the 1950s, I believe both the British Defense Department and the U.S. Defense Department were both 
boasting, even in the media, that they were very close to developing some sort of anti-gravitic device. And then, all of a sudden, late 1950s, there was like a complete blackout, and nothing was ever said about that again. Do you think there may be a connection? Yeah, I do. I mean, that's absolutely 100% true, that you can look back at the historical record now and find newspapers and magazine articles, aviation periodicals, you know, where they're talking about the military coming very close to developing like an anti-gravity technology and that, you know, they were talking about how it would revolutionize the world, etc., etc. What's interesting is that all this was in the period of sort of 56, you know, 57, 58, which was at the height of when Maurice Jessup was doing his research and when he was flown out by the Navy to talk to these guys from this advanced weapons and technology project. There you go. So, Listen, I'm sorry, i got to jump know, in here. Nick, i got the music coming up, so okay. uh, we'll, we'll uh, break away when we come back. We'll, we'll finish up on that, and then we have to get into one of the, I think, one of the strangest chapters uh, in your book, one of the strangest sections, and this has to do with dimension hopping with the military. A bizarre story of the U.S. military perhaps going over to the Middle East to capture genies, or what they, they refer to as the jinn. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show and Nick Redfern. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Uh, the strange findings the government doesn't want you to know about. Nick Redfern is here, and this is a, a rich vein to be mined for sure. So, uh, and obviously, uh, only time here to scratch the surface, so you'll want to go out and get a copy of The Pyramids and the Pentagon, the government's top-secret pursuit of mystical relics, ancient astronauts, and lost civilizations. That's Nick Redfern's latest. And uh, we've been talking about uh, the Pentagon's investigation into claims the Egyptian pyramids were constructed via levitation. I mean, we could probably, you know, go on and on at length and talk about uh, that. I mean, I'd love to get into a discussion about, you know, whether or not the the Pentagon or the CIA were perhaps investigating uh, that uh, Latvian-American eccentric down in, in, uh, in Florida who constructed the Coral Castle and some suggested that those huge... Um, megalithic uh, stones, uh, limestone formed from coral, they each weighed several tons. Perhaps he used the same type of technology, uh, it has been speculated, to move those around. Um, well, yeah, I mean, you, you, you know, wherever you look around the world, there are you know, anomalies involving vast stones and big questions as to how they were moved, you know, and, and you know, that, that, that's a classic case because it demonstrates that you know, it's not necessarily always in the distant past, you know. So. Indeed. Uh, one of the uh, the frequent con- contributors to this program is uh, paranormal researcher Rosemary Ellen Guiley. I know that, that, that you know uh, Rosemary. And uh, she's written extensively and researched exen- extensively about the djinn, uh, D-J-I-N-N, not uh, the kind that comes in a bottle. <laughs> Although, <laughs> well, actually, that's not true. Some do come in a bottle. <laughs> Both varieties come in a bottle. That's right. uh, but uh, genies, we call them here in, in the West. Uh, these are supposedly interdimensional uh, entities, not particularly well-mannered from what I gather. Um, and lo and behold, I see this section in your book, The, the Pyramids in the Pentagon, uh, that suggests the military, the U.S. military, may have actually tried to capture one of these things. Is that true, Nick? Well, this is a very weird story. I mean, there are a number of stories like this in circulation. I actually got a very similar one to this when I was researching an earlier book called Final Events, where the military was obsessed with jinns. Um, and for people who aren't aware of it, you know, basically, jinns are sort of the Middle Eastern equivalent of 
sort of I guess you know, demonic entities in some in some cultures or goblins, you know, and trolls. They're sort of perceived as sort of creatures that can be benevolent, but if you sort of cross their path, they could be malevolent as well. And they sort of live in, you know, sort of twilight ethereal realms that kind of coexist alongside ours, you know. So in other words, the term jinn, one person's jinn in one part of the world 2,000 years ago, you know, is another person's goblin or, or pixie, you know, in 15th, 15th century England, you know. It's kind of like that sort of thing, or a sprite or a hobgoblin. Sh- shadow sort of people. Thing. Yeah, exactly. But what it all comes down to is that these entities are perceived as being creatures that can sort of flit in and out of our reality. And if they do that, well, you know, it's obviously not by using the simplistic terms like magic or something like that. Obviously, there's a there's some issue at work that allows this to happen. And this is one of the areas that the government looked into. Also, the idea of so-called stargates, you know, of sort of leaping from one realm to another. Um, and this is, you know, this is something I talk about in the book, this angle that the military was sort of consulting ancient texts and, you know, mythologies and folklore, etc., to try and determine if it really was just mythology and folklore, or if there were sort of portals using some advanced technology to other realms of existence and Mm -hmm. dimensions. And, of course, you know, somebody got hold of that. That would be an incredible technology, you know, from a military perspective. And there are stories about supposedly trying to capture these things and, you know... um, I mean, how you would do that, that's an entirely different thing. And granted, you know, we only know snippets of the story, but, you know, there there are a number of stories like this that have come from various sources over the years about, you know, trying to capture these entities. Now, of course, if that's happened, we haven't been told about it. But certainly in the latter part, or excuse me, in the middle part of this this decade, a number of stories surfaced from different sources all about sort of attempts in the Middle East to to capture, you know, for want of a better term, jinn or, you know, sort of equally benevolent uh, or malevolent, I should say, um, creatures that become known as like elementals, you know, that sort of exist in some magical realm, if you like. But And it was specifically the military that was supposedly trying to entrap them. Any documentation that you found? No, I mean, that's the thing, you know, there's... there's where, where possible, I always try and get verification and additional sources, doc, uh, you know, Freedom of Information Act. This is one of these stories that, you know, as I point out, it's a take it or leave it one in the sense that the story's been told, but nothing has surfaced at all, you know, officially on this. It's, it's, it's purely sort of word of mouth. And, you know, but, but I point out in the book where stories are word of mouth or whether from deep throat whistleblower sources or whether they're from... Freedom of Information Act, or a combination, you know, because it's important to, you know, get across to people the different varying levels of how the data is serviced, I think. When you're investigating and researching this book, and you're contacting uh, former CIA agents or, 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 or spokespeople, how do they react? Do there is there a defense sort of a mechanism that goes up? Do they do they try and laugh it off? Are they embarrassed uh, that you know that uh, they've been caught sort of investigating this stuff? How do they handle it? Well, you know, I mean, that's an interesting question. It's one I've never actually been asked before, but I mean, I can give you I can give you an answer. Um, you know, what very often happens is that you know the initial impetus will be people coming to me. 
you know, they'll say, you know, hey, I read your last book or whatever and wanted to tell you something about my time in the service because I know something that was related to that. And so very often they're being quite forthright, but then they might say, well, you know, here's seven names of people I work with, so you track them down. And when you phone them, sometimes, you know, you get a you do get a combination of, oh, well, yeah, I've been waiting for somebody to tell, tell this story too. Others are, well, who are you? Why are you contacting me? You know, and they're, they're actually fearful. I've actually had a couple of occasions, not many, but just a couple, where the person has thought it's somebody in the government who's been trying to track them down and encouraging, he's encouraged phoning them because they don't want them to talk. You know, I had to convince them it was the exact opposite. Other times, you know, people have just said, no, you've got the wrong person. And then after a while, you know, I found back and said, well, I know I haven't got the wrong person, you know, but if you don't want to talk, is that what you say? And they're like, yeah, I don't want to talk. Um, when you're using freedom of information, you know, that's very much more sort of bureaucratic. You know, they don't sort of enter into debate and conversation as such. It's more, thank you for your request. You know, it'll be processed within 90 days. And if there's any material, be forwarded. And if there isn't, we'll, we'll tell you, you know, that the search came up a negative response. So, you know, it's not like you kind of, you know, they phone you up and say, Hey, dude, you know, this is cool. You know? <laughs> right, like right. That, so. Well, I, I asked that because a few years ago you wrote, uh, you know, The Real Men in Black, yeah. uh, people that have been uh, visited by these mysterious uh, individuals uh, after, you know, claiming to see a UFO and going public about it. I'm just wondering whether you ever got a sense that maybe you got a little too close to something you shouldn't have and maybe you got a visit from someone. Oh, so, um, I've never had a visit or anything like that, but what I have had is a lot of very weird telephone interference. And what's interesting is that the telephone interference has occurred when I've been doing interviews, and I actually bring that issue up. It's almost as if, you know, someone's listening in, and it's like an attempt at intimidation, you know, to say, hey, just to let you know we're listening, you know. And... That is one of the typical aspects of the Men in Black mystery is that, you know, it's not just people get that sort of slow banging on the front door at midnight. You know, they pick up the phone and there's like this weird chattering or electronic voices in some strange language or, you know, just screeches and electronic noises. Um, and, you know, in today's world, it's not like the Hollywood movies, you know, where they have to tap the, keep the person on the line for 10 minutes to trace them and everything. You know, those days are gone. And the days of hearing clicks on the phone are gone as well. So if this is being done, and I think it is, because a number of people reported very similar things to me, it's being done deliberately, you know, to, and it's being done to, like a psychological thing, to let you know someone's listening. And, and I think government agencies prefer to do that, you know, than outwardly threaten people, because if you, if you sort of stay in the background and listen, you have a better chance of just, carefully, you know, monitoring the entire situation. You sort of, if the government plays its hand and, you know, takes action, people clam up. If they're not really sure anybody's listening, that's actually to the government's advantage to sort of play, you know, that sort of um, careful approach, if you like. I'm smiling as, as you're describing this, uh, you know, this phenomenon of, of, of uh, strange telephone interference. I, uh, it's starting to, you're starting to connect some dots for me. A couple of weeks ago, I was uh, on the road doing the show at a remote location. I was in Saskatchewan interviewing a 9-11 researcher, Jim Fetzer, also a JFK uh, uh, researcher of some renown. And that, uh, Dave Gaskin will uh, agree, I mean, that was a, that, that from beginning to end, we had nothing but technical uh, difficulties that night. And given that the, 
the uh, the nature of the uh, the subject matter. Maybe that's what was going on. Maybe uh, there were certain things being divulged that certain people didn't want divulged. Nick Redfern is with us. The book, The Pyramids in the Pentagon, the government's top secret pursuit of mystical relics, ancient astronauts, and lost civilizations. We just have a couple of minutes. Um, I just wanted to mention, you, you brought up the Stargate. Uh, and, uh, you know, interdimensional, uh, uh, travel and so forth. And of course, the military would be interested in getting your hands on a piece of equipment like that. There was some suggestion that that may have been the real motivation, uh, for the Gulf War One. That, and, and around that time, I seem to recall that, uh, Saddam Hussein had brought in some German archaeologists, uh, to dig in the, uh, the, the sands, uh, in the deserts in Iraq. Uh, and then some uh, suggested that's what he was looking for. He was looking for that Stargate, uh, and the, um, you know, the the uh, the um, the American forces and their their um, their allies. The I guess it was called the Force of the Willing or whatever it was. Uh, they were look, they were trying to get there and get that Stargate first. Yeah, there's a lot of weird stories linked with with both Gulf Wars about you know the people who ruled in the area looking for ancient technologies, and you know that part of the missions for going in there was to see what could be found. And I mean, a classic example with the you know the the latest Gulf War is that when you know the Iraq was at a tight in turmoil, the Baghdad Museum was looted, which contained a lot of priceless artifacts, ancient manuscripts, and Various things that a number of researchers suggested sort of told stories of, you know, sort of ancient issues and mysteries that government agencies might want to get their hands on. And what's interesting is that when an investigation, a U.S. military investigation was undertaken, it demonstrated that far from being just sort of random looting, you know, by people in the city who were just, you know, just out of control and just grabbing stuff, it seemed that certain parts of the lower levels of the museum had been deliberately targeted and specific items were taken that were sort of priceless, that told ancient stories, you know, of, of Iraq and um, some of these legendary, legendary ancient kings who supposedly possessed magical powers and things like this. You know, and when you hear that and you realize that that part of the story is legitimate, it does sound like, you know, somebody was actually targeting and pinpointing certain things um, and possibly even using the war as like a you know a as cover a cover. For, there you go. Well, Nick, who it was that's the big question. Exactly. Well, I'll leave it to you because no one else I, I could imagine could get to the bottom of it. But Nick Redfern will, and perhaps the answer will be revealed in your next book. But uh, uh, congratulations on the pyramids and the Pentagon. It's a good one, Nick. Thank you for joining me. Thanks a lot, Richard. All right. All right. Well, I really. Uh, Appreciate uh, Nick stopping by. Fantastic, fantastic read, The Pyramids in the Pentagon. Hey, you can read all about Nick and uh, other uh, guests on the show. Check out our website, www.richardserrett.com.